Good morning. Most of us have friends, or at least some sort of acquaintances. We have some people that we get along with, some people that smile if we pass them in the hallway. Uh, most of us, I think, have some people who are real friends, good friends. Um, I'd, I'd say a smaller number actually have some people that uh, I've heard a really good term is 2 a.m. friends. That people that you could call at any time of the day or night and actually expect them to show up, whether that's just to listen or to physically show up and help you with something. How, how many of you would just, just say you, you have a 2 a.m. friend, somebody you know? Awesome. See, it's, it's not everybody, but it's a lot of people, and that's a beautiful thing. We all should have 2 a.m. friends. Here's the thing. The idea of authentic faith, uh, I want, the 2 a.m. friends actually really matters in a moment. But just to make sure you're on board if you've missed some of this, the authentic faith idea is simply this. Faith is authentic if it's based in something that's real. So your, your 2 a.m. friend, your faith in them is, is, is authentic if you call them up at 2 a.m. and they actually show up. If they actually are who you think they are, then your faith is authentic in that. Uh, the other side of it is this. Authentic faith is authentic if you actually act on it. If you believed that they would do that, but you just couldn't get up the nerve to make that call in the middle of the night, your faith is not authentic. Even if it were true, even if it could be real, you're not going to experience it because you haven't acted on it. That, that, that idea of authentic faith uh, threads through all of these things that we're talking about these couple of weeks and all of the teachings of Jesus. Jesus actually told us that if we were wise, we would build our lives on his teachings not just accept them as true, not just kind of uh, really appreciate them or respect them or see the wisdom in them, but we would actually, choice by choice, step by step, obedience after obedience, we would trust him enough that we would actually build our lives on his teachings as a foundation. Some people do that, and so they experience things that everyone else does not. It's not because they're better people in and of themselves. It's because his teachings are true. They are authentic. It's a real firm foundation. And people experience that only when they actually build their lives on that as a foundation. We all start out as beginners, and Jesus understands this. But I, I, I need, to, especially in what we're talking about today, is fellowship. And I need to make sure we, we clarify something. What most of us call fellowship, when you, when you talk to just any Joe or Josephine Christian in any church anywhere, what we normally call fellowship is actually a pale comparison to what a 2 a.m. friend would be. Even people who aren't believers, if you've got someone in your life, believer or non-believer, that's a 2 a.m. friend, that's, that's way above what most of us settle for or, or even expect when we say the word fellowship. And that's pathetic, and here's why. What the Bible calls fellowship, what God offers us, what he expects from us, what the Acts 2 church actually experienced is so far above a 2 a.m. friend that you just can't even imagine it. It's, it, it should be that, that, that the 2 a.m. friend idea is just like training wheels or entry-level stuff compared to what God actually is calling us into. 
And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're looking at the example of the early church, and we're going to see that. But first, I, I need you to know that this idea of fellowship, like baptism and a few of the other things that we've gone over the last couple of weeks, are, it's one of those things that God threads all the way through the Scriptures. It's important to Him. And so you see this idea kind of, it keeps coming up. You see it in stories, you see it in actual teaching, you see it in prophecies, you see it in commandments, you see it in judgments in the prophets, and because you didn't do it, it, you see this all the way. The things he really cares about, you see that. All the way back to Enoch, who had fellowship with God, Noah, who had fellowship with God, you see this all the way up into the New Testament. By the way, if you're following along, with the insert in your bulletin. I know that only a small percentage of you are note takers, but if you want to do this, I just gave you the first answer, and this will keep going. Also, if you're not a note taker, but you like studying God's Word, there's a bunch of scriptures on here I'm going to reference today, but not read out loud, and I strongly urge you to go home and just read these yourself. Meditate them meditate on them with God, just you, and you'll really get where they're going, but I'm just going to reference them today because we only have roughly half an hour. Is that cool? All right. So here we go. So God wants us to have fellowship, and the early church experienced it. Let's read together, if you would, um, Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. I'd love to hear your voices and you to hear that because it will stick in your brains better. Here we go. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over all of them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Last week we talked about what a miracle and a blessing that it is. That we, what we call the New Testament is pretty much the, what in the New Testament was called the Apostles' Teaching. This was the first-hand, first-person eyewitness accounts of what Jesus had said and done during his time on earth. These were people who had seen him and heard him and experienced him. Not only the apostles themselves, but even the people that they were speaking to in that first generation that became the first church. They had actually seen this and experienced this. As they were teaching, several of them could raise their hands and say, yes, I had some of that bread and fish, and it was good. Oh yeah, I saw that. I was friends with Lazarus. I was at his funeral. I saw the dude walk out alive four days later. The, the, the apostles' teaching was something that, that was validated not just by the apostles themselves, but everyone knew this was real. And, and collectively, especially with the people who had that job that had, God had inspired to do this, they, they wrote it all down and they gave it to them. But listen to what one of them, the apostle John, this is, I read this for, same verse last week, but I want, don't, don't want you to miss it. <clears throat> Can't talk. I don't want you to miss this. This is the Apostle John writing in 1 John 1, verse 3. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father 
and with his son, Jesus Christ. So once again, you're seeing the, this idea threading its way through. You're seeing it in Old Testament version. You're seeing it. Now you're seeing it in here. And he's saying, you know why we're sharing this story about Jesus the Messiah? So that you can have this. This is for you. The intimacy that we, the apostles, are experiencing with Jesus even now is something that you can have. The love that we have for each other, the love this first church is experiencing just days after they've all come to Christ and been baptized and given everything to him, that's for all of you. That's why we're sharing this story. So this is important and we absolutely cannot miss this. Let's talk this morning a little bit more about what fellowship is. Fellowship is built around a shared purpose. What we sometimes call fellowship is basically just getting along or having a good time. What we sometimes settle for fellowship is basically just anything that anyone who's ever gone to a movie, and there's a lot of other people wanting to see the same movie, that's what we settle for as fellowship sometimes. Or um, just the idea of if you've ever gone out to eat and you, you enjoyed the meal and the waiter or waitress was friendly and everybody had a good time, we say that was fun. Sometimes that is it. That's that we think that's fellowship. But true fellowship is far more than that. And I, I, it's really important that we get this. So here we go. Real fellowship, biblical fellowship, is built around a shared purpose. Everyone in the group is devoted to their vision, completely devoted. I love what Rick was sharing this morning. We're like the pig, not the chicken. You follow me on this? Completely devoted to each other because of their commitment to this vision. And the way the early church did it is probably a little different than how God probably wants us to do it. But this vision is the same. This idea of that we still have the gospel today, now we have it in written form and call it the New Testament. But the fact that we have this is because God still wants that fellowship that he had with Enoch and Noah and all the other people I had fellowship with, and he wants us to have it with him and with each other. J.R.R. Tolkien was a Christian, and it's no accident that he called the, the group, the iconic group that he created in his trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. In that story, you had a wizard, an elf, a dwarf, some men, some hobbits, creatures and people that would never have been even in the same room by choice if they could have helped it. And yet because they had this passion for we've got to shut down this evil power that's taking over our land. This has to happen. And the thing that's going to make that happen is we've got to destroy this ring. And the only way to destroy the ring is to get it back to the fires it was forged in and throw it in. We will do whatever it takes. And suddenly these people that used to be enemies, that used to not even have any respect for each other at all, we're giving their lives for each other and for this cause. That's a really good picture of fellowship. And when, this is another cool thing that happens, when people are that devoted, when they get it, when their vision becomes part of their identity, you can actually call that person, that group of people, a fellowship. Suddenly, that is what the word fellowship, like the fellowship of the ring, that's what that means. It's a group of people who do that. A group of people who experience this. They're so committed to their, their shared passion and their shared vision and the way that God has showed them to get there 
that they're willing to do anything. Andy Stanley says this, plans and strategies can always be changed and improved, but vision doesn't change. I wanna read that one more time. Plans and strategies can always be changed and improved, but vision doesn't change. So this morning, I want you to know, as we look at their example um, in, the, in the early church, we're going to be looking at some, some of what we're looking at as plans and strategies, but some of it is vision. Keep your eyes wide open so you don't miss that. Back to the Lord of the Rings one more time. Um, I, I, I don't really apologize for sharing this. It's a great story, and it's wonderful and a beautiful way to communicate this. But if you're not into Lord of the Rings, it's the last time. So here we go, today. On the way to the fires of Mordor, what, what they discovered was their plans had to change a lot. They had originally imagined that the entire fellowship would stay together the entire time, that they would fight back to back and they'd work their way all the way through and they'd eventually end up, all of them standing on the little cliff inside the thing and throw in the ring and cheer and woo-hoo-hoo. That was what their original plan and strategy was. As things happened, it took three books to tell this story, they, by the time it finally got to the end, there were just two that actually were there. Everyone played a vital part. Everyone in the fellowship was really crucial to the thing happening. But they had to separate. They had to completely reimagine what they did so that the job could get done. And finally, at the very end, the ring bearer, the only one who could actually do this, it's complicated, just the way it was, he was the only one who could do it, trust me. Anyway, he just can't go any further. And one of the best scenes in the entire story is the movie or the book is his best friend Sam says, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. And sometimes that's what it means. That's what it means to be part of a fellowship. Sometimes that's what it means is you, you can't take someone else's burden. You can't make everything great, but you are not going to let them fall. You are not going to let them fail. You're not going to let them not experience what God has for them. You're going to do whatever it takes at any cost to yourself to carry them through. This is a beautiful illustration of what it means. Again, we can't all be Jewish believers in Rome 2,000 years ago any more than we can be hobbits in Middle Earth. But we can capture this vision we can actually become as devoted to the fellowship as they were if you just let God have it all. That's my challenge to you this morning. Please, let's look one more time and let's really focus and let's make sure that we get this. Here we go. In the Acts 2 church, they did not have active and semi-active and non-active members. There were only two categories of people in their church, believers and non-believers. That wasn't being judgment, judgmental or harsh. It's just they understood at a fundamental level that if you believed in Jesus, that meant you built your life on his teaching. That meant that you had come to him. You had chosen to be a disciple. You had gotten baptized. Your sins were forgiven. You had the Holy Spirit in you. And now you were learning day after day to obey all the things that he had commanded. All of the things that he had commanded. And you knew and were experiencing his presence with you. And you knew that your mission in life was the Great Commission. That's what it meant to be a believer. And if that wasn't you then you were a non-believer because authentic faith means what you believe in is real and you act on it. 
They understood that. They got it. They knew there wasn't a separation. And God help us. May all of us get back to that. But listen, all of the believers met together daily. This is some of the ways that they express their devotion to fellowship. I'm not sure we need to meet together daily. I'm not sure we need to look at this verse and go, oh, and they met in a temple. We need to build a temple. Uh, uh, They met in their homes. Oh, we need to stop meeting in a church building. We need to only meet in homes. I don't think that's what this is saying here. But here's what it is saying. If we were as devoted to the fellowship as they are, we would be committed to meeting together. This would be a priority. We plan the rest of our lives around that. Whether that was Sunday morning, two or three times a week, whether that was daily, that's not so much the point. The point is this is who you are. You make sure that you have the apostles' teaching and you have fellowship and you have the Lord's Supper and you pray together, that you serve together. You make this happen. And anything less than that, you can't call it devotion. It's not being devoted to that. Secondly, all the believers shared everything that they had. Everything. They they, they didn't have like a concept of personal property anymore. They shared everything. Now maybe, maybe we don't have to do that today. Maybe that's a plan or a strategy, not the vision. But listen, kind of just throwing a 20 in the plate sometimes kind of given to a cause sometimes when you believe in it, buying an ornament to support a good cause every once in a while. That's nothing. That's not even on the planet of commitment and devotion to a cause and to the people who are trying to get that cause done. God is calling us to so much more than that. Among these people, there were, no one had need. The orphans and the widows were fed every single day. And and that wasn't because they had this really cool program and they did it at Christmas time or Thanksgiving Day or something like that. It was because that's how they rolled. That was the plan. That's how they did life. This was everything. Everybody shared everything. Now, I'm not sure, again, that we're supposed to share everything. But there are four big things you've got to know about God and money, and any other resource he gives you. Your gifts, your energy, your time, the relationships and the networks that you have. These are fundamental. And all of these tie into the idea of fellowship. All of these are part of it. Part of it is that commitment. Part of it is that passion that drives the whole thing. And part of it is the tangible ways we express it. And I need to express these this morning. Here at Morrison, we really don't talk a whole lot about money. Part of that is by choice. I don't ever want us to be that kind of a church where you know that the offering is going to have its own sermon every single Sunday. But this is just fundamental truth. I'm going to let God kind of unpack it for you. I'm giving you the scriptures that these come from. These aren't even all of them. These are just a little taste of some of them. But each one of these are some of those major themes that go through scripture. And if you're serious about committing to the fellowship in every sense, then this is where you start. So here we go. Number one, God owns it all. We are just stewards. That's where it all starts. That's the foundation. That's the bottom line 
of how it works in God's economy. Whatever other choices you make, this is where it starts. Every cent that you get, every, every amount of energy you have, every second of time you have, everything you own, everything that you, you are, really belongs to God in the first place. It's not being generous to give God some of your time, some of your money, some of your energy. That's, it's His stuff. We're just acknowledging that, even if we gave back 100%. When we start thinking about our money or the church's money, we're, we're missing the point unless we start with that concept. It's really God's. Secondly, God loves first fruits. All the way back to the story of Cain and Abel. How many have heard the story of Cain and Abel? Normally the, sto- normally the moral of the story all the way back in Sunday school when you're a little kid is don't kill people. Don't hurt people. God doesn't like it when you kill people. And that's in there. That's a really strong message of that story. That's in there too, but there's an even deeper one and it's where this whole thread starts. Cain brought some of the stuff that he had grown and gave it to God. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and the very best of his flock because he knew that it all belonged to God so in honor of that gave God the very best God loved that Cain noticed how much God loved it and got jealous and ended up killing him but that's almost a separate story really this is where this theme goes and all throughout scripture you see these themes of tithes and offerings you also see first fruits they're kind of blended together i've made them a little bit separate but i just want to make sure this is how this works you give god the very first thing you get and the very best thing you get so he gets your best time he gets your best whatever else You write the check to God first, or at least you deduct it. Maybe you write it physically Sunday morning while the plate's being made. I don't know. But whatever you're giving to God, that that comes out of your money first. That's the way that works for us today. God also loves tithes. Again, you see these threads all the way through. All the way, first time you see this in Scripture is Abraham goes and he worships God with a priest whose name was Melchizedek. Later in Hebrews, Jesus is compared to this guy, Melchizedek. But he goes and he worships and he gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he had as part of his worship. You see this number 10 a lot. This is it. But honestly, truthfully, if you really study all the way through this thing, the tenth is kind of like an entry-level training wheels kind of a thing. It's not really God just really likes the number 10 or God really wants 10%. But he threads it all the way through. In the, in the law under Moses, they were required to give 10%. It was the law. You could not give God less than that. You had to give the first fruits. Offerings is not... Well, I don't really want to give the tithe. I want to just give an offering. I'll just kind of name my own amount. Scripturally speaking, tithes is the bare minimum, and offering is anything else you want to give him above that. And again, even deeper than that is, it's all God's anyway. Now, I need to say this really clearly because I want to make sure that you guys understand me. We're under the new covenant. 
That's not the law anymore. You don't have to do that to be saved. We're saved by faith in Jesus. But I also need you to understand this. The same God who loved long before there was a law, long before there was Jesus, the same God who loved first fruits when Abel gave it to him, still loves them today and still blesses them. The same God that blessed Abraham for giving him the tithe and giving him his first fruits all the way back long before there was a law, long before there was a people of God, long before there was a Jesus or, or the Acts 2 church. He still loves that, and he still honors that. And I believe that the promise in Malachi 3, I wrote the reference there, but here's the basic thing. Is God, in Malachi 3, God actually tells those people at that moment, and I believe it applies to us. He says, test me in this, says the Lord. See if I don't throw open the gates of heaven for you if you will give me the first fruits and the tithe. And I know so many people that have taken that risk and seen God come through. Because here's the bottom line. This is why there's a picture of Abraham. Not only did he offer sacrifices to Melchizedek, he also, if you remember, a couple weeks ago, we actually went over this story again, but he offered his son, his only son, his firstborn son, the first fruits and the best of everything he had. And what did God give us to demonstrate his love for us? His firstborn, his one and only son. So again, I'm not trying to get you back into a legalistic kind of mindset. I'm not trying to get you to, to think that we're still under the Mosaic law. We're not. But this is the same God. And he loves that. And he honors that. And we completely miss all of that if we don't trust him enough to do it. The reason that Abraham became a friend of God and is still honored today as someone who is an example of what faith really looks like is because he trusted God completely, was willing to do anything, even sacrifice his own son. If you want to see God really come through, you're going to have to trust him at least that training wheels level. Finally, the two greatest commandments are another thread that goes all the way through. And this applies not only to money and how we treat each other, the fellowship that we share. This applies to everything. Think about this for a moment. If you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, would we need to talk about maybe we should give a little more? We would not be having this conversation. And if you loved your neighbor as yourself, would it be shocking? Would it be revolutionary to say, man, these people shared everything? No. I don't know exactly what plan or strategy God is calling you into this morning, but you've got to capture this vision. This is how his kingdom works. This is what it looks like to be devoted to the fellowship is to be completely committed to the cause in each other and willing to give anything, to sacrifice anything to get there. Jesus himself said, one of the verses that's in here is in Luke chapter 6, but basically he applied this to judging each other and a whole bunch of other things. And in the middle he said, whatever you give, the way you give is the way it will be given back to you. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. 
This is Jesus himself. This is New Testament. This is the apostles' teaching. And again, this applies to everything. This isn't just about money. What we're really talking about this morning is the, is the fellowship. We're talking about the, this is our fellowship. This is the group of people that have committed to getting God's job done here on earth. And right here at Morrison Hill Christian Church and in Rome County, the way all the people that all of us can, can reach out to collectively and individually, we are committed to that. We are a fellowship based on that. And here's what fellowship looks like. It looks like a lot more commitment to meeting together, a lot more commitment to being there for each other, a lot more commitment to sharing with each other, and a lot more giving to God than what we're doing right now. What he's calling you into, you're going to have to be obedient to. I hope this makes sense. Again, all of this applies to everything. Jim Elliott was a missionary who actually ended up giving his life for God. He said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He was talking about his own life. And honestly, that's what we're talking about here too. You give up your sense of identity so much that your whole life is about a cause. You are defined by the fellowship that you're a part of. You're giving up your life. If you are willing to give up the ownership of the stuff that you have, the, owners, the stuff that we call the church's money, the stuff that you call your money, the stuff that I call my money, we give up ownership that to God. We're completely obedient to whatever he is telling each of us to give. You just lost your life. You're giving up who you have been up to that point. That's a big, big deal. But this is fundamental. This is what it is. This is how it works. So I'm inviting you this morning to make that kind of a choice. If you've been running from Jesus, come back and give him everything. If you've never given your life to Jesus, come to him, but know that you're giving him everything. Maybe there's something else that you want to decide or, or to just have prayer for. Come to the altar and let, let us pray for you and encourage you in that. Maybe you would like to join our fellowship. We would love to have you be part of it. But would you come as we stand, as we sing?